Today we're going to be looking at the third and final passage in this three-week study and look at how God views money, how God is, is calling us to treat our finances and how God is calling us to treat others with our finances. And, and this is really the most difficult passage of the three when you look at it. James offers us in chapter 5, in one, verses 1 through 6, really a, a scathing indictment of the rich people. He offers just a really hard word to anybody that has excess money in their bank account. And, and we read it and we step back and we're like, whoa, man, James woke up on the wrong side of the cot that day that he's writing that out. And, <laughs> and this just doesn't, doesn't go with the rest of it. Why is he so angry about this? You see, what James recognizes is that, that money has the temptation to corrupt. Money has the, the, the temptation, and it's given to, to change our perception of reality. I was doing some reading this week about the English Reformation, and as I'm going through and reading about, about people's involvement in church, and the thing I kept reading over and over again is people would take their money and so they'd live essentially however they wanted to live, much like people in our day. Not much has changed. And so they're living however they wanted to live. And at the end of their life, they would take this vast sum of money and they would give it to the church. And the idea in that is that, hey, look, I'm dead, but my money can continue to work for me. So they would endow the mass. They would say, let, let 10,000 masses be offered in my name so that so that God will look favorably upon me. They had the same idea and understanding uh, that was common in Catholicism of purgatory. And so they give this money to shorten their time in purgatory. They give money to build churches. They give money to erect these things that were called stone steeples, these stone churches. It's outdoor pulpits where somebody would stand and, and preach in their name, in their honor. And so there's this idea that's at work even inside of us today that money, that our provisions can provide satisfaction in the eyes of God, that our money somehow enables us to have a greater response or a better response from God. And James addresses the, the problem that money, the, the, the problematic way that money affects our behavior in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Let me read it for us. James says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. This is how we should all write letters. He says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. This is not sounding like a love letter. He says, you've laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Difficult text, right? James isn't flowering it up for us. He's not, not soft-serving this to us and saying, Hey, look, you know, maybe you don't spend money on some things that you should spend it on. Maybe you could be a little more generous. No, instead, he says, hey, Daddy Warbucks, check this out. You're corrupt. Please continue reading to the end of the letter. And so we read this, and, and we begin to think, well, James, that's not a very nice way to talk to people. 
But you remember last week when we looked at the passage and it was a church and it, and it described the idea of partiality and we assigned partiality with money. When we look at the rich people in 5, 1 through 6, I'm firmly convinced that he's not addressing rich Christians in the church. Now, some of you think, man, that was a close one. <laughs> I mean, I had this vacation planned and I had all these things I wanted to do with my money planned and so let me just check out. You see, just because he's not addressing Christians in their congregation doesn't mean that we can't take these same things and apply them. In fact, James, on the one hand, is telling people, this is how you shouldn't act when you have money. And on the other hand, he's writing to the poor people, and he's saying, look, God hears your cries. God will deal with them. You continue to glorify God in your life, and don't envy the riches of the rich people, because they lead to this type of living. So he says, come now, you rich, weep and howl. James writes them, and, <laughs> and imagine, in my mind, when I think of, of, of really, really rich people, not people that are just financially independent, but extravagantly rich people, they're always happy in my mind. Like, I'll say, man, I bet they've got more problems, and, you know, they're, they're dealing with their sixth wife, and I'm sure that's not a pleasant thing. But, but somewhere deep inside of me, I'm thinking... Yeah, money causes a, a lot of problems, and it's, you know, more, more, more money, more problems, but some of those problems I wouldn't mind having, and, and I'm pretty sure money might not be happiness, but it, it does away with a lot of misery, and so that wouldn't be a bad thing, but James's word to them is, come now, weep, and howl. James calls to them, and he says, look, it doesn't matter if in the midst of your situation right now you're experiencing joy. It doesn't matter if you've had a record year of profits. It, it really doesn't even matter if maybe your business is beginning to fail or you and the wife aren't getting along and so things aren't great for you. In the midst of, uh, of their lives, he calls them to weep with howling. So he doesn't call them to this tame display of being upset where James writes and he says, hey, come weep and howl. And we read that and what we think is, you know, just a, one tear begins to trickle down their cheek. And they take in this idea that they should really contemplate with depth and have this great sense of clarity that their wealth is problematic. No, I mean, the, James uses pretty, pretty intense language here. He says, weep with great howling. Have you ever heard somebody just sob uncontrollably? Have you been around anyone that just, just has this, this, you know, they begin to, to cry and it's... That's what he's talking about. I mean, it's, it's not this tame, oh, hey, would you like a tissue? It's, would you like a beach towel? Because you're, you're covering everybody with this. That's what he wants them to come to. He wants them to come to this understanding that they should be bent over, sobbing uncontrollably. For what purpose? Because miseries are coming your way. James calls them out of their recognition of, of status quo. He calls them out of their understanding of all the things that are going on around them, whether joy or sadness, and he calls them to a recognition of judgment. James calls them and he says, your stockbroker's not going to see this. Nobody sees this coming, but you need to have this right understanding that misery is coming your way based upon how you're living your life. 
And James rolls it out in verses 2 and 3 and shows us all the ways that miseries are being found on them. He writes in verse 2 and he says, and he says your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Continuing in verse 3, he says, Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. So in the day that James writes them, people valued or people recognized wealth relatively in, in one of three ways. And so one was agricultural. So how much land did you have? How much money did you have tied in land and the produce of the land? Secondarily, it would be, what's your status? And so did, did you shop primarily at Old Navy? Or you know, are you shopping at you know, some high-end store that nobody knows the name of? You can't pronounce it. It's probably in French. And you need a, che- you know, you need a credit check before you even get into the store. Their clothes were a status symbol of how much money they had. And then the third way that, that people measured wealth and they knew how much money someone had was having, amounts, having vast sums of precious metals, so having gold, having silver in large supply. And James goes after all three of these. He isolates three ways that people assign wealth and he attacks all of these. The first one, he says, your riches have rotted. Now, James writes to them, he says, hey, look, you have storehouses upon storehouses of of corn, you've got wheat, you've got all of these things stored up. But what you don't realize is that they're no good. There's no value in them. They have lost all their value because they have turned, they're they're rotten, they're rat-infested, they're just no good. This thing that you assign your value and your understanding of your identity to is valueless. The person said, well, okay, well, I was really planning on making some money off that corn, but at least I've got these nice threads. And James says, man, I've got, I've got bad news for you. He says, your wardrobe that you pride yourself on, the, 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 the bling that you wear to get everybody's attention as you walk in, you've got the grill going with your initials spelled out in the front of it, everybody's impressed, you've got gold on your teeth. I've got news for you. It, it's, it's gone. It's, it's valueless. It's, it's got no value to it. These clothes are moth-eaten. They're, they're just not good anymore. Now, if you read James very much, James seems to take the sayings of Jesus, he takes the teaching of Jesus, and then he expounds upon them. And so if we flip over to Matthew 6, 19-21, we see Jesus making the same type of comment. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where the moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, James isn't writing them and going after their wealth because he wants to create this perfect situation, this perfect society where everybody's equal, where everybody's even, where everybody has the same amount of food, the same amount of provisions, and we all wear gray, and we all drive the same sorry car, and we all live in the same sorry set of apartment buildings. He's not creating a Marxist society. But what he's doing is is showing them that their value system, the place they assign value, the place where they assign security, is wholly bankrupt. The things that they assign value to in their lives are, in fact, valueless. And he turns to the last one, and he says, and your gold 
your gold and your silver they have corroded. Now, other translations might say your gold and your silver have rusted. Now, this creates a little bit of a problem because if you have any gold or any silver, you'll notice that you're not in there treating this thing for rust, are you? I mean, if, if you have a ring on your hand and that thing is rusting, somebody did not give you a gold ring. I'm like, you should, you should go talk to them because this is a real problem. Gold doesn't rust. Silver tarnishes but doesn't go that way. But James writes and he says your gold and your silver, they're rusted throughout. They're corroded entirely. They have lost all of their value. See, James is pointing to the fact not that, that he has some keen awareness of the composition of gold and silver and that he's got the inside scoop that there's a plague coming that's going to especially affect them and they're going to rot in half. But what James is writing to and what he is addressing is a mindset. Just as they place their value and their worth in crops, worthless. Just as they place their value in people recognizing their wealth in the community, worthless. And just as they have placed their value in having things that everybody cherishes, gold and silver, he writes to them and he says, worthless, worthless. You see, they found the thing in their community that, that contributed to their having a better name. They found the thing in their community that they found gave them more safety for their future and for their present. And James's word to them is worthless. You see, in, in the 1630s in Holland, we see this same thing break out. People assign value to uh, to a variety of things i mean some things stupider than others we saw people go crazy over beanie babies and furbies i mean it's just it boggles the mind for a brief period of time tickle me elmo went for way more than tickle me elmo ever should and you just want to grab his little throat and and tickle him right to death but in the 1630s in holland tulips were all the rage you see a merchant had been to constantinople and he brought back a flower from constantinople he brought the tulip. And people saw it and, and they were just floored. And they said, man, I, I want that tulip. How much should I give for a tulip? And you'll remember if you study any economics, a thing is worth exactly how much someone is willing to pay for it. And then supply and demand gets in and you can talk to an economist about how the curve works out. I cue dropped that class. I didn't enjoy it at all. But these people begin to say, I, I, I want that. And they notice that their neighbor, he wanted it too. And so people begin to amass tulip bulbs. And so tulip bulbs begin to, to be on the rise. And people are buying options for tulip bulbs. And they create a whole subgroup of economy founded around tulip bulbs. And found, we, I found one record of sale. Keep in mind, this is for one tulip bulb. And this is what was traded for it. Four tons of wheat. Eight tons of rye, one bed, four oxen, eight pigs, 12 sheep, one suit of clothes, two casks of wine. I'm sure to help them forget that they just traded all this for a tulip bulb. Four tons of beer, two tons of butter, a thousand pounds of cheese in a silver cup, presumably to drink the beer and the wine out of. And so they traded all of this stuff for one tulip bulb. They gave all of these things that have concrete worth for something that in four short years will be found to have none. Now, for any of you sitting in the pews and thinking, man, i got to get on Amazon and order some of those tulips because those things are really doing well. Why did, my, why did my stockbroker tell me about them? 
See, I got on Amazon this morning, a, a little bit excited that I maybe had found a new way to get rich. And I can get 12 tulip bulbs for $5.49 delivered to my door. You see, they thought they had found something of enduring worth. And so they bought in wholesale. The highest value recorded for the sale of one tulip bulb is the modern-day equivalent of $76,000. You see, our temptation even today is to, to take things that, that don't have enduring worth, but to set our hopes and to set our dreams on them, to set our security on them. And just as James writes to these people, those things have corroded. Those things have been destroyed. Those things will not endure. And this is the big kicker. It's not that it's just those things are, are valueless and that your portfolio is going to have a really bad quarter. But James writes to them and says that their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Your, their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. James is making a reference to the fact that these people place their hope, these people place their security on things that didn't have enduring enduring value. You see, instead of placing their hope, instead of placing their treasure in the person of Jesus, they place their hope and they place their security on things that they could manipulate and control. And because of that, they're going to have their share in the lake of fire. They're going to have their flesh burned as with fire when they face the judgment of God for assigning supreme value to what in reality is valueless. That's the hard word that James writes to them. And then adding one more point, he says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. You have laid up treasure in the last days. This reminds me of the quote from Luke. Luke 12, verses 13 through 21. We have Jesus speaking, and he has this parable of the rich fool and the text says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, against greed, against wanting what other people have. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up for himself treasure and is not rich towards God. You see, the temptation for all of us is to find those things that we think will, will give us security. And then when we see the blessings of God come our way, we begin to hoard those things. Or the temptation is to hoard those things to give us more security. And increasing ease and increasing comfort. We are not being rich towards God in that behavior. And James is going to deal with that shortly. Now, as we go into verse 4, we see that their behavior is so incredibly evil they, that they even begin to defraud those that are working for them. James writes and he says, 
Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, we come into this, and I need to make sure that we're on the same page. You see, there's this, this understanding that you look at this, and so we, we pit rich people versus poor people is, is what I was waiting on you to say. So we pit rich people against, we pitch rich people against, man, you guys are really getting good at this. And so we pit rich, see, look, see what happened there? I spent all this time teaching you the rich versus poor, and then I go to say it, and, and it comes out, pitch people. It's just sad. And so we have the rich people, we have the poor people. And so we, we assign values just like they were doing in James 2, 1 through 13. We say the rich person is to be valued He's a productive member of the church. Likely the poor person, we really wish he would just kind of go away. He stinks. And we come into this, we're, we're, we're not all the way against the rich person because they've done some pretty awful things, right? They're, they're finding all their value in the things they have. But we, when it comes to the poor person, we start thinking, well, they're probably pretty lazy and I'm sure they've got what's coming to them. But when we read this text, James isn't talking about those that won't work. James isn't talking about people that just want to sit around and, and you know, do whatever it is that you do all day when you don't work. You see, because James also has an understanding, he has the same concept that Paul brings in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, where Paul, writing and addressed the issue of idleness, said, if you're not willing to work, you don't get to eat. So he just lays it out there. But that doesn't get rid of the situation that we see here in James. James isn't talking about people that, that weren't willing to work. James is addressing people that were working but were not being paid. James comes to the situation. He says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields. He says, you went out and, and you have these fields that needed to be mowed. And you found people and you said, hey, would you come in and mow my field? And I'll pay you X amount of dollars to do that. I'll, I'll, this is the arrangement. This is when payday is. And so you had a clear plan with these people. So the people came in and they said, okay, you know, give me the tools. I'll go mow your field and then I'll come back later and we'll, we'll harvest it. And we'll put all this stuff up in your barns. And they come to, to the sweet daddy Warbucks and they say, all right, man. Where's my, where's my cash? The guy's like, well, today's not a good day to pay you. I haven't processed bills yet. If you come back on Monday, I'll help you out. And so likely they say, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, I understand. Hey, I'm sure if I had to run a business, I'd have a whole different set of problems than you do. And so the person comes back on Monday, and it's like, hey, look, weekend was tough. Made it, though. Really need that paycheck. I'm not asking for an advance. I'm asking for the thing that that, you know, see, like, I work, you, you pay. I, I, I work, and then you, and you pay me. And the guy's like, well, yeah, I've decided not to pay you. No hard feelings, though. I'd, I'd still like you to work next season. And the guy's like, what? But, but, but I worked. And he's like, yeah, I recognize that. My barns are full. I appreciate it. Um, go away. I've got to eat now. And the poor guy's like, what? I, I don't really understand this. See, the poor man has no no money. He can't hire somebody to take up his position. He can't hire somebody to, to come against the rich person. He is left to the devices of the rich person. He's left twisting in the wind. He, he just has no other avenue to pursue. 
the, the wages of the laborer who have worked diligently have been kept back by fraud. But just as the corrosion and the gold and silver cried out against them and was evidence against them, so too the fact that they are holding back the wages of those who have honestly worked for them are crying out as a judgment against them. They're crying out, not just to those around them. It's not that the poor people, go, poor people go out in the community and they say, man, have you ever worked for Steve? He's such a jerk. Yeah, man, I'll never work for him again. He's so dishonest. Have you ever worked for John? Oh, man, <laughs> don't get me started on John. If you thought Steve was bad, John actually whips us when we're working. That's, he's an, what a jerk. And he doesn't pay us. We do get lunch, though, so that's nice. But he doesn't pay us at the end of the day. See, James comes into this situation. And it's not that the poor people are spreading bad information about the rich who don't pay, but it's that their cries have made it all the way to God. The text tells us that they have made it to the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now look, I don't know how you envision God. But there are a lot of people, a pretty prevalent idea of how God is, is he's this great grandfatherly figure sitting in a rocking chair, and he he empathizes with the poor, and he's saddened when they're sad, right? Does that sound familiar to a lot of you? But when we look at this passage, what we see is that God described as this all-compassionate God. The text tells us that he is the Lord of hosts. You see, they have made it to the ears of God. And the way the text tells us is, is that the Lord of armies, the one who stands ready with the angelic host, the, the armies of heaven coming down and meeting out judgment on the rich who would defraud the poor, on the rich who would work the poor and not give, on the rich who would abuse those in community and not be generous to those around them. God hears the cries of the poor. Now, for those of us who who own businesses, this is a word to us that, man, we need to treat our employees well. We also need to work for the rights of those that we see abused. And so we see a variety of people brought into this country illegally and forced to work, and they've got no legal recourse but to continue to work for people. I read of a, of a girl who was brought in from Haiti and held in Miami for nine years while she worked 16-hour days in a household with no pay, with no ability to leave this place, all on the hope that things would be better. You see, it's not just a call to us not to behave this way, because very few of us are, are rich landowners who have a mass of people coming in depending on us. But it's also a call to defend those around us when we see injustice worked on them. We, we stand for those with no voice. We work against those who would propagate injustice. We go out and be a mouthpiece for those who have none. We share the love of God in a a practical way, and in this case, what that means is working on behalf of those who have no recourse of their own. Now, James needles a little bit here. He needles a little bit in verse 5. He says, you've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You fatten your hearts in the day of slaughter. Now, we get into verse 5, and we read it, and we think, ooh, what's my retirement level set at? And it gets problematic for us. We start thinking about those things that we have in our life that are luxury. And, and i got to tell you, when I'm reading this passage this week and studying it, I thought, I wonder if anybody would notice if I just stopped with verse 4 and, and just said, hey, look, congratulations, short service today. Tamales, you'll beat the crowd. Congrats. But as we look at this text and, and, and we read it to the poor person, not an issue, right? They're like, <laughs> Luxury, 
are you talking about my pillow and my threadbare blanket? Yeah, that's pretty luxurious. Are you talking about the fact that I'm hanging out underneath the overpass and, 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 and I've got like grass trimmings on my arm to keep me warm? Oh, you're right. Next time I'll, I'll, get, I'll get, you know, chip bags to keep me warm. But see, for the mass majority of us in this room, there are things we have in our, in our homes, there are things we have in our cars, there are things that we have that are just luxury. But even hearing that, it's just, it's offensive, isn't it? it? It's offensive when we hear these things and you're like, man, I worked hard for this. I, you know, I, I worked 60, 70 hour weeks for 30 years to get me this. To have this house, to have this beach house, to have these three cars, to have a, a motorcycle, to have surround sound in my bathroom because I like the way it sounds off the tile when I'm sitting in the tub. I mean, to have all of these things. But this is a difficulty. You see, Christianity very much calls us to provide for our children. Proverbs 13, you can read that, that you should provide an inheritance to your children's children. Savings is a good thing, right? Savings is a good thing. You work hard, you get paid for that. You save up money for your retirement so that you're not a, a drag on your children. And man, I am thankful that my parents are doing that. I'm thankful that my parents said in their minds a long time ago that they don't want to be, you know, oppressive to me. They don't want to exhaust all of the potential funds that I might have, and so they're saving for themselves. They set aside money for grandchildren. They set aside money for great-grandchildren. They pay for college for, for children and for grandchildren. These are good things, but this is the difficulty. What for me is luxury and sin, might to you not be. It's a matter of perspective, and this is why it's difficult. Because Christianity isn't just a list of, if, if, if you have over $250,000 of net worth, you've made it into the luxury category. You see, it could be for the person that has $21,000 of net worth. For them, there are luxuries that they shouldn't abide by. Christianity requires that we engage ourselves, that we investigate, and that we pray diligently before pursuing, that we pray diligently before purchasing. And so while there may be things for me that are sin for me to purchase because they're an extravagance and they're a luxury to you, they may not be. And this is difficult. This isn't license to say, well, I don't know what Matt's problem is, but I can get whatever I want to. I can buy whatever I want to. I can do whatever I want to because my conscience is clear. Friend, you're just not engaging your conscience. If you're not at least struggling about what you should spend money on, should you give money to the poor or should you buy an iPad? Should you take a vacation or should you give money to missions? Should you advance the gospel of God or should you increase your comfort in that brand new Lazy Boy, one with the feet pop out and it's got the speakers built in and it's just awesome. I don't know if they have such a thing, but they should. See, Christianity is difficult because it's all about denying self. It's all about advancing God at the expense of our comfort, at the expense of our luxury. And James writes to a people that are so completely lost on this concept. He says, you've lived your life <clears throat> on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. James writes to these people, he says, man, you've seen something you've wanted and you went out to buy it. 
James could have easily said, he said, you know, there are those who wait for the Black Friday deals. You don't really care. You order everything online anyway. You see what you want. You bring it in. He said, you fattened your hearts. James said, you've, you've set your heart and your mind on those things that gratify self. And you've said to yourself, nothing is off limits. If I want it, I'm going to get it. And James tells me, he says, you've done this in the day of slaughter. You see, these people don't realize that there is a God of judgment, a God of justice, ready to rain down wrath and terror on them, ready to call for them. Like the man who brought in his crops and he continued to build larger and larger barns to house his ever-expanding wealth, they don't realize that God is coming and coming soon. The way that we see time told in the New Testament at the return of Jesus began the last days and it ends, it is punctuated with his second coming and none of us know when that will be. And that is encouragement for all of us to live as if he is coming back today. So when we make purchases, we make purchases in line with the fact that I've got to give testimony to the king of why I'm driving this car or why I'm living in this house or why I'm vacationing in this place. Christianity is difficult because everything is fair game for God. Everything is fair game for him to weigh in on. But these people have hardened their hearts. They've turned against it. They've completely lived their lives in a way to satisfy self. And they've, they've quit celebrating the one who gave them gifts and started celebrating the gifts. And that is the point when it becomes idolatry. When we start celebrating the things we've amassed as opposed to celebrating the God who gave us the energy, the creativity to get these things, then we have entered into idolatry. And we've completely turned away from what it is to be Christian. In verse 6, we see the, the final product of their greed. James writes and he says, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. <clears throat> you see this poor person that was working for them, this subsistence worker, this person who worked, got money, ate, worked, got money, ate. He's not saving because he's not making that much money. When his wages are withheld... He goes without food. It's not that he's not contributing to his 401k and he missed out on a great buy. This person, when his wages are withheld, he does not eat. Because that's how he brings in money. That's how he supplies for his family. And the greed and the selfishness in the people that James addresses in here is so ingrained in their ways of life that they are given to only caring for themselves. You see, they're so greedy and they're so given to supplying for themselves and, and meeting their own needs that they haven't even thought about how their action affects others. That when they hold back that wealth so that they can buy a larger television, so they hold back that wealth so that they can have more and more and more, they've killed this person. I don't think James is entering into hyperbole. I think he's showing cause and effect. I think he's saying, when you do this, this guy doesn't eat. When this guy doesn't eat, he dies. This person is so desensitized against generosity that they have killed the poor person, the righteous person. 
He didn't even have the strength to resist them. You see, when we look at this text in James, I mean, it is a difficult word for us to take in. You know, if we take the perspective and say, look, these are non-Christians, God blesses everything I do, well, friend, you're wrong. You see, on the one side, it tells, tells us that we should not pursue these things because they are ephemeral, they are transitory, they are falling away, there is no true value in these things. And it is God blesses us that we need to, in turn, bless those around us. That we need to be generous, that we need to be kind, because God has been generous, because God has been kind, even in extending you salvation. And we are generous in response to the great generosity and care and provision of God. You see, whenever we take the things that God gives us, and we begin to to celebrate those things instead of celebrating God, we've entered into idolatry. And then we have headed down the same path as those that use their riches to provide security and use their riches to provide status. Friends, as we sit here today, I want us to think through two questions this morning. What in your life is keeping you from being generous? See, in some sense, the cure of greed is generosity because they are at war with one another. What is it in your life that is keeping you from being generous? Secondly, how do you handle the temptation of putting your trust in wealth? You see, some of us are so well invested and we've been so careful with our money over the years that we find our security in that. That even if everything else goes away, we find our security in money. What are you doing to work on your temptation to that? Since God is at work in all of our lives, He is calling us to a higher purpose. He is calling us to full obedience. But giving of our money with no strings attached and giving of our resources, those things that we have worked so hard for for so many years, it's one of the last strongholds for a lot of people. How is God calling you to be generous? Who is He calling you to be generous to? Would you continue to follow your own leading or would you follow recklessly the will of God, no matter to what end? Let me pray for us.